Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewery on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos in Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos in Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. Welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. One of the fun things about having done 40 episodes now is we get to have back uh, former guest and one of my uh, favorite is Dr. Kenna Archer and we had her back a, a while ago to to for an episode where we talked about her uh, Unruly Waters uh, book where she did research on the Brazos River and that's a great episode if you want to check that out but before that if we go back before that and we dig into Kenna's past uh, she did research on uh, Cameron Park and this episode is part uh, two of a series of uh, podcast episodes on the history of Cameron Park. And so we've got one more coming, and Mark Furman was the first one. So if you're listening to this, go back and listen to Mark, uh, and then come listen to uh, Kenna here. But Kenna's research that she did way back, how long ago was it, Kenna? Well, I'm dating myself here, but it was 2005 to 2007. Okay, 2005 to 2007, Kenneth did research on flora uh, in Cameron Park. And so she's here to kind of help us with uh, that sort of history. And so uh, first off, I, I appreciate you joining us again and revisiting this research. Uh, she's got other books coming out on Texas environmental history. Uh, she has a book uh, coming out on uh, air conditioning in Texas. And so there's a lot of research she's been working on, but she's revisiting this older research for us. But as we think about Canner Park, Kenna, and that research that you did, uh, perhaps you could start a little bit of maybe a historical overview, maybe some of the early uh, chapters of that work and kind of set the stage for us if we want to think about the natural landscape of the park and some things folks should know. Yeah, sure. That is, that's actually a great, great place to start. One of the really interesting things about Cameron Park is that the topography is quite diverse, right? Anybody who has ever seen the park, even if they know nothing about geology and geography can appreciate how different Cameron Park is on the West Bank of the Brazos River compared to what's sometimes called East Brazos Park or just Brazos Park on the East Bank of the river. They're completely, totally different. It's a relatively small space, although a fairly large urban park, but you have these limestone cliffs, this alluvial floodplains. You've got these little insular meadows, these deep ravines and sloping hills. And what you're gonna see is there is a great diversity in the types of plant species, grassy species, wildflowers that you're going to find within the park. It's been true historically. 
And it's still true today, right? It makes sense. You're going to have different plants that flourish in different parts of the park because of the topography, the soils, the available sunlight, proximity to water. And so if you start there with this idea that you're going to have different trees in different parts of the park, the next really, really fascinating thing about Cameron Park is that you mostly have the same like tree species and shrubby species today that you had 150 years ago. It's not so much that the type of tree species have changed, for example, but the composition is radically different in some places because of largely human-induced pressures. For example, the growth of Waco right next door or the introduction of roads or say the construction of a giant dam 4.6 miles upstream on the Bosque River. And so that's really interesting to me. I Back you know, in the day, <laughs> 2005, 2006, 2007, when I was conducting my field work in Cameron Park, I cored trees. I did this type of mapping where I would go in and find fence lines and former homestead sites and basically evidence of human presence where I would do vegetative plot studies to identify species. And it was always very surprising to me to see evidence that then later I confirmed in historic sources that showed both how radically the composition had changed and just how much similarity you could still have in the types of species, except for example, those exotics, which deserve uh, a whole a little section to themselves. So if you're wanting to well, know, we're like going to get to those. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that would uh, be great. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the earliest sources, uh, there's always a little bit of uncertainty about names when you're looking at historic sources. Like, is that really a post oak or is that a different type of oak species? So sometimes when you're getting down to the nitty gritty of naming, you, you sometimes have to take historic sources with a grain of salt. But we do have a lot of surveys, a lot of vegetative studies that give us a pretty good idea of the different plant species you're going to find. Uh, you might talk about it as like a vegetative census. We, we have a pretty good vegetative census of the park. And so, for example, historically speaking, if you're thinking like, you know, 1849, right, and the establishment of Waco Village or the years right before or after that, up on the ridge tops where you have that sort of weathered Austin chalk limestone, it's, it's not super thick soil, it's not super deep, it's not, you know, ideal for all farming purposes. And up on those ridge tops, you're gonna have a lot of Eastern red cedar. You're gonna have a lot of ash juniper, so much so that they hybridize. And it's actually impossible if you walk through the park sometimes to tell whether it's an, a cedar or a juniper. So we just talk about cedar breaks, those dense patches of cedar, but really it's juniper and cedar and hybrids. But you're gonna have these dense patches, these cedar breaks with cedar and juniper. You're gonna have a lot of live oaks, Anyone who's been up to Lover's Leap, for example, or any of the other, you know, Emmons Cliff has probably seen those beautiful, broad, open-leafed, crowned live oak trees. You're going to have, as well, a lot of cedar elm and a lot of white oaks, like Duran's white oak. 
if you move to the cliffs, um, you're going to see, again, a lot of cedar, a lot of juniper. You're going to see more honey mesquite, which can handle sort of the slopes, which can handle the very shallow soils. And then if you move into the stream valleys and what they call the alluvial floodplains, right, where what once were small periodic floods would deposit those fertile soils, you're going to get totally different species because you have totally different soil matrices, right? Different soil types in different combinations and at different ratios. And so along the floodplains, historic sources actually pay a lot of attention to these trees because they're valuable for construction, right? And so you get a lot of references to pecan, to Eastern cottonwood, you know, black walnut, cherry, American elm, and all sorts of oaks, red oak, white oak as well. The stream valleys are a little bit more removed off the river, right? But in the stream valleys, you're going to have a lot of the same species, but also you'll see some ash, some sugar hackberry, and some elm as well. And so these same species, you, you can find them in the park today. Uh, and you could have found them in the park in the 1910, 1920 era when those lands are being donated for park purposes. And you certainly could have found them in the earliest days of settlement. Uh, again, when they're first starting to put pressure on that area in terms of logging, grazing, and settlement, summer homes, for example. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind as you mentioned that should we think of the areas of the less desirable uh, sort of trees as the most undisturbed uh, or the, 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 there was less human activity in those areas because those trees didn't have a commercial value? That is such an interesting question. And in some ways, it's actually the exact opposite. It depends on how you define desirable and disturbed because this is a bit simplified, but in general, the park sort of operates on a gradient and you have the deepest, wettest soils on the floodplain and the shallowest, rockiest soils on the cliff tops, right? And then the cliffs themselves. When you think about it in those terms, the most desirable land might be along those floodplains where you have great farming soils. Like if you think East Waco, right? Was very early on had farming on the east bank of the river and you have you know cherry and even more so walnut and pecan and oak that can be used for construction purposes i mean we know that they floated down cedar right from the park to be used in the suspension bridge we know they went into the park and logged for you know these early homes for construction purposes the first church uh used cedar and oak out of the park in its construction but what was so beneficial about those ridge tops is that they were great for grazing. They were absolutely ideal conditions for grazing. And so you actually saw a lot of disturbance. And I, I can't quantify it because there's not the right kind of sources to do that. But what I saw in my scientific surveys and my field work, what I saw in my historic sources and I conducted a lot of interviews talking to other established <laughs> scientists, uh, geologists, for example. And what they confirmed as well is that there was clearly a lot of logging and then grazing along the ridgetops. And 
those ridge tops in Cameron Park were probably essentially grassy open pastures up until the 1910s. And so in that I sense, see. you have more disturbance in those areas, even though they're less desirable in hindsight because they were just so perfect. And it was common. You probably know this in terms of cultural practices. It was really common. It was so common in the 1800s and into the early 1900s for families who are rural or who are like lower to mid socioeconomic class to keep animals, right? To keep chickens or goats or cattle or horses or whatever it is, depending on their location. And so it, it fits the cultural norms of the day as well to think, uh, well, you have this ideal spot for grazing. You actually have the city of Waco that passes a law in the 19th century that makes it illegal to run hogs in the city. Well, it makes sense that you would start basically running them through the park. And, and I found a lot of fence lines, um, discarded fence lines that have not obviously been placed in the park in you know, the 2010s or anything. Uh, well, I didn't conduct my research in 2010. So 1990s, we'll say. Yeah, that landscape up top, you use Lover's Leap as kind of a reference. Seems like a more vulnerable landscape to erosion and things. So, I mean, having activity up there, because I, I do the river trail down below and I think of all the rock that's fallen down. I mm -hmm. mean, that activity or heavy use up there must have really contributed to erosion and kind of the degradation of that, that uh, kind of exposed area up at the top. Certainly, there are going to be some pretty intense ecological consequences, just as there would be anywhere where you see persistent grazing. Now, that's not to say you don't have ecological consequences down in the valleys and in the floodplains. For example, you know, you have Lake Waco Dam in 1929. You have Whitney Dam, right, constructed from 1947 to 1951. You have the expansion of Lake Waco in there as well. And anytime you're building dams, you're going to alter the hydrological regime of the rivers. And you have floodplain species like cottonwood that are dependent on periodic floods for reproduction, um, for basically what you might call their hydrological needs as well for clearing out undergrowth. And so you have changes on the floodplains as well, but in, in a, I don't want to say they're more resilient but mm -hmm. you sometimes do see that when you have a limestone bedrock and a very thin soil atop it, that you can't have a vulnerability there that I yeah. think you do see in Cameron Park. In fact, in the 1950s, the Parks Department actually plants bamboo intentionally as an erosion control strategy, which in hindsight, I, I've heard some people who are just appalled at this practice, but you know, that's in hindsight. At the time, it made perfect sense to introduce bamboo to control what was a very real problem. But there's also times when other exotics are, are introduced accidentally, unintentionally in the same way today that people release pets, right? And critters. I have a blue parakeet roaming the park nearby where I live. It's apparently a park where people go and dump unwanted birds. We just have this park <laughs> in our city where all the tame parakeets go. It's both <laughs> tragic and a little funny. Um, and so 
you, you definitely see some issues with erosion in the park. You see some efforts to handle it. And once grazing ends really in the 1900s and 1910s, once you have that land up there, because I'm sure Mark got into this, but the park, those lands are, are donated and deeded in segments and in sections mm -hmm. to the city. And so really the ridge chops are one of the last areas to be deeded. And so once you see that deed, you have an absolute immediate release for those lands and grazing comes to an end quite quickly in a historic sense. And so that, that sort of ushers in, triggers a whole other sort of era vegetatively because then you have regeneration and that's not even either. Different species come in at different times. So definitely you have some issues with vulnerability up on those ridge tops, up on those cliff tops, um, you know, Jacob's Ladder, for example, uh, in that area over there as well. Mm -hmm. The uh, I, I like the term vegetative census. Um, so when you're doing this work um, in the early part of the 21st century, <laughs> had there been previous? Yeah, it makes it real sound real historical. It does. <laughs> uh, had there been <laughs> had there been previous work? I mean. Could you draw on, you talked about commercial sources and looking at kind of descriptions of what's in the park, but what are you drawing on as far as historic information of, of what was there at a certain point in time? That is a, a very good question as well. You're, you're filled with good questions today. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the sort of unfortunate things, but also one of the beautiful things with this work is I, I didn't really have many sources to draw on. You did have uh, people like Bray or Tharp who had gone through and written scientific or sort of historo-scientific examinations and studies of various places. And so you had a pretty good idea of the species that were in the cross timbers, for example, and in the Blackland prairies and in areas near Waco. But there wasn't really a whole lot of work that was explicit to Waco and certainly not Cameron Park itself, at least not in terms of official scientific studies. And so a lot of the sources, like secondary sources that would sort of list out census, the, the trees and the plants for me were uh, pretty recent and they had to do with something like soil. And just then in passing, they would mention, well, these are the trees that you see here. And so I got a lot of my information from, for example, the letters, the diaries, the travel memoirs, the newspaper articles about, oh, look at the church we just built that date back to sort of the founding of Waco itself. Now, there is one period where there is an abundance <laughs> of information, and that's 1910, because you have the park's dedication, right, on May 27th, 1910. That's a gala affair. I mean, Waco citizens, almost the whole city showed up, right? And they're in their finest and businesses close. And the mayor, uh, what's his name? H.D. Mistrot, uh, gives a speech at Proctor Springs. And there's hundreds of photographs that are taken quite literally. And you have dozens of articles and editorials and people writing letters and keeping scrapbooks. And so that's actually a huge, huge source of information about the park's flora and fauna. And it's unusual to see such specific information 
about this point? Because initially settlement sort of ignores Cameron Park because it's not ideal for settlement, right? It's too rocky. So they, they move further away, closer to today, where you have the spring and the suspension bridge, or they move to the East Bank where you have that great farmland. But 1910, we know, we know that there were, you know, oaks and hackberry and walnut and pecan and elms. And we know wildflowers by name in some cases, which implies open fields, if you're going to have that sort of packed density of wildflowers as well. So 1910 is the one moment where we, we really don't have a dearth so much of sources. Yeah. And going forward, that's going to be true because the centennial, I mean, your work is around the centennial uh, and the centennial, there's so much work done, including Mark's work and things like that. So I don't know that we've learned to get consistent information on what necessarily is in the park. Um, I'm interested from your view as an environmental historian, once you call an area a park, what does that mean? I mean, culturally, what does that bring with it? to designate this a park because I, I have an idea about that, but, but I'm interested, I mean, how does it change the responsibility you think of the people to the landscape now that it's called a park? Oh, this is such an amazing question. And I'm so fearful. I'm going to slip into too much theory and jargon. So stop me. If I get too well, teachery, don't do that. If I get too teacher, you no one to. listening wants that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no one listening wants that. So restrain it. Yes, yeah, so, so stop I th- me. If I, I think, get think too I'm talking teacher. to you. I, I think I'm talking to you in your boys' room. So just ex- pretend you're explaining it to him. <laughs> um, I don't know. My children are little nerds. Um, so when I look at the park and and think about what the creation of a park space does. I have to get a tiny bit teachery here. Um, nature can mean different things to different people, right? The fancy thing is to say it's a social construct, but if you don't want to get fancy about it, it just means that we all interact with nature in different ways on a daily basis and in different ways at different parts of our life. And so sometimes when I talk to people about parks and what they mean, they immediately assume that creating a park will make nature in that space safer by sort of setting it aside. But that's not necessarily what happens um, because some people are going to still view Cameron Park as a place to go selectively cut. So you will continue to see some small scale, uh, you know, logging, you might call it, although it's sort of personal scale. You'll continue to see selective cutting even after it's set aside as a park because for some people creating it as a park doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't mean more than, you know, their subsistence level needs as they had been practicing them for other people. It's all about, like you've said, it's the trails, but you can have enough people and anyone who's visited our national parks or or Yellowstone, for example, is intimately aware of this, but you can have enough visitors to a park that you do damage, right? through the compaction of the soils and pressures on nearby trail vegetation as well. I know this is something that the Parks Department in Waco is very proactive. They're very active about this. They've done a great job trying to be careful with this, but there's been concerns at various times in Waco, right? That Cameron Park's trails are seeing the effects of what could be a good thing, too much traffic. And so, 
you know, certainly, uh, you know, going back to the 1950s when the Parks Department is, you know, planting bamboo to prevent erosion. Well, that was prioritizing one experience of the park, one type of sort of healthiness, you might say, over another. So, I mean, as a general rule, what you're going to see in Cameron Park is setting it aside as a park, it increases the number of trees. So by that metric, it is a really important and good thing. Forest cover increases. And if you look, not that most people do this, <laughs> but if you looked at aerial photographs of the city of Waco, you wouldn't have to be trained as a historian. You wouldn't have to be trained as a scientist. You would obviously see the increase in forest cover once they stopped grazing on a large scale. Um, but again, that doesn't tell the whole story there. So I think it's great that we have Cameron Park. I think that was a very sort of proactive thing that the city did. It's one of the larger urban parks in Texas. It's one of the larger urban parks really in the United States. It's a beautiful space, but it is definitely too simplistic to say creating the park saved the nature within it or anything like that, which is what I sometimes tell myself when I go, I just wanna be in nature. And so I drive out to the park to walk around in it. Uh, can you enjoy that without deconstructing what's around you? I can because I am really good at cognitive dissonance. <laughs> and, and sometimes I will be walking and I'll think, wow, this is so manufactured and the little teacher part of me will start sort of taking over. But I, I'm pretty good also at just going out and enjoying. I can enjoy the fact that the bamboo in the Nandina, in the chase tree with those beautiful purple blooms, that they're all invasive and they're all exotics. I can both enjoy their beauty and simultaneously go, man, there's a lot of exotics in this park. That's a problem. Or Vinca even, right? Those little flowers, little purple flowers, they're beautiful. But they're exotic. I, I've gotten to a point where I can kind of live with that uneasy tension and still enjoy my walk. <laughs> well, I enjoy a good screensaver every now and then. So, I mean, I, <laughs> yes. we're simple creatures in, in that <laughs> regard. Uh, I, I wanted uh, to ask about um, pecan bottoms, like mm -hmm. uh, that pecan grove. Obviously, it was at one point it was a pecan grove or a pecan grove was put in there. When they added that bridge, because it cut through a pecan The Herring Avenue Bridge, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it split the forest. And that was in 1969. Uh, but, ex you know, extending that Herring Avenue Bridge, right, split the forest along the pecan bottoms. I don't know of a specific time when they developed that, uh, except I feel pretty confident in saying that they were taking advantage of sort of a pre-existing concentration of pecan trees. Because if you walk yeah. the trails, there are, there are a lot of pecan trees right along the bottoms. It's a common floodplain species, although ironically, we have pecan trees out in West Texas too, right? Although they're introduced. <laughs> and But they're on, the, they're on the rivers. That's the only place you find them. And so pecan trees, they're a common sort of floodplain species. We know that they were there in abundance because, you know, obviously people would go out and shake down the trees, basically. Eat the pecans, mm -hmm. supplement, you know, whatever their diet happened to be. And so if you have a bunch of those pecans anyway, maybe 
there was enough there that there was sort of this local pecan grove already. We know that there was a cedar grove, for example, that the Waco Indians uh, purportedly upheld as sacred and used uh, the trees in their tent poles, their centered tent poles. So it's possible as well that there was this existing concentration of pecans, but it's also possible that at some point in the early 1900s is probably when it would have happened. It's also possible that they managed it because parks, again, that whole social construct thing that the teacher in me wants to talk about, parks are managed, right? I mean, they may be managed to different ends and with more or less input, but they are managed. So the question really is how much managing did they have to do to turn this into pecan bottoms? And I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Um, I'd like to go back. You talked about the introduction of non-native and then kind of exotic species. You mentioned the bamboo being planted by the city in 1950s. Uh, what are some other maybe things you learned as far as when non-natives or other exotics are introduced and the impact of that? Uh, good question. And before I answer it, I just remembered that in my research, I did learn that the parks department, you might call it beautification, like a la Lady Bird Johnson. Some of it was in that era. Some of it would probably predated it. Again, I don't have hard, fast dates here, but I do remember um, learning that in my interviews I conducted and some historic sources I saw that the Parks Department did preferentially go back in and plant some species like pecan. So they probably did mm -hmm. augment what was there. So as for exotic species, there is, how do I say this politely, absolutely zero agreement. <laughs> about when these different species mm -hmm. got there. Um, now, what we do know is that arguably the most familiar exotics or invasives, arguably the most familiar ones are one common privet. Most people know what the privet looks like, even if they don't, you know, ligustrum vulgare and don't know the Latin words and all that. So privet is the most common and then bamboo, specifically golden bamboo. And I actually interviewed dozens of people, uh, including former administrators, uh, for example, within the city of Waco, and asked about exotics, and nobody could say. Um, there seems to be some sort of agreement that most of these exotics were in the park by the early 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, certainly 1940s. But beyond that, I've been totally unable to quantify this. And maybe there's someone out there who's sort of jumping in their seat and they know this. Um, but I, I do know that, you know, Nandina, Vinca, English ivy, chase tree, chinaberry are all pretty pervasive in the park at this point. They were certainly there by the 1940s, 1950s. As I said earlier, the City of Waco Parks Department actually planted golden bamboo in the 1950s. So that's at least one sort of temporal marker there. But the timeline otherwise is pretty fuzzy for the spread and the introduction of exotic species because there's part of me, and certainly my students will bring this up sometimes, but there's part of me that will sometimes look around and go, these exotics are all over the park. 
that must mean that they have been here a long time. And that can be deceptive. That can be deceiving. Just because golden bamboo is, is all over the park doesn't inherently mean it's been there for, you know, 150 years rather than 75 years. Because I, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, you've built dams. That's going to alter hydrological patterns. You're going to have erosion, as you mentioned earlier. You've had both natural changes, because not all change is brought on by humans, right? You've had natural changes. You've had man-made changes, anthropogenic changes that the Waco Indians used to practice burns, right? Uh, in addition to grazing, that's going to change soil makeup as well. And so it's easy to look around and say, well, there's a lot of China berries. They must have been here a long time. But these exotics are so hard to control precisely because they do thrive in the climactic conditions, in the ecological conditions. And so that makes dating it really hard. They're unfamiliar, so people don't know the names. That makes dating it really hard as well. Yeah, and we and we may want to, you know, through historical snobbery, uh, maybe criticize these uh, non-native species. But I always think of the tagline for Cameron Park for the pleasure of the people. You know, just you know the the idea of you know emulating an English garden or the idea of just bringing in things they enjoy, uh, not the consideration of trying to keep it uh, a native landscape. Yeah, I think there's a lot of validity to that. The, I think snob is a good word. The snob in me sometimes looks at, you know, a place like Cameron Park and, or even my own backyard, honestly, and just thinks, oh, I want to uproot all these exotics and I'm only going to put in the native species I know are going to thrive. And that's just impractical for one thing. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to uproot English ivy, but I mean, that just sucker, that's not going anywhere. <laughs> and so it, it's impractical, yeah. but there's also, as you said, something to be said for this, maybe it's a new and it's a hybridized and it's a not totally native beauty, but there is something to be said for, you know, the beauty of stumbling into a meadow in Cameron Park. And I did this frequently on accident when I would go off trail just enough, not purposefully, but go off just enough that I ended up on the wrong trail and didn't precisely end up where I meant to go. And I would stumble on these meadows that were just solid vinca and it was beautiful. Or you would stumble onto one of these trails and it would be, you know, the ivy with the chase tree and then the china berry with the red and, and it was beautiful. And so I think there is something to be gained there that even if it's not you know these native species alone that there's still value in the landscape it's not perverted right it's not lost it's not valueless because it's not quote purely native yeah i, I i've interviewed people about the park and oral history and I can imagine if we restored it just to native species, if we could even do that, uh, people reminiscing about missing the bamboo, the historic bamboo uh, in Cameron Park of their youth, you know, <laughs> I, uh, because that's become part of what the park is. I mean, part of the makeup of the park. Oh, absolutely. Uh, when I was interviewing my, for my oral history portion of my work, 
a few years ago, we'll say, but in the early 21st century, I, I frequently <laughs> had informants, um, these interview subjects, these interviewees who couldn't precisely say when they first remembered seeing these exotics. They, they really couldn't even name all of them, but they had these clear, powerful memories of riding their horses through the park, through these meadows, and they remembered the ivy and they remembered the vinca and these non-native species were intimately tied up into these very positive like childhood memories and then there's also places in the ridge top in particular where the canopy like the big trees not the understory where the canopy is like predominantly privet and so if you were to replace that with a native species i mean you might still have these you know canopies of trees and maybe it might be more ideal ecologically but it would look totally different it would not look visually because i don't know if you know this but an oak and a privet don't look the same they would not look mm -hmm. the way that people envision cameron park and whether we like it or not whether we want to say it's right or not there is something powerful in our perceptions and something powerful in the way we've defined a natural space and Cameron Park has become this sort of amalgam. <laughs> it is, I'm trying to think of this bigger, better word. Um, but the composition, now let me think of a better word here. I don't have a better word. <laughs> it's just this amalgam. <laughs> it's this nice soup <laughs> of all these. It's a mosaic. Yeah. You know, of the. There you go. That's nice. It's, it's a mosaic. That's better than soup. It's a mosaic of these different species, native and non-native, exotic and invasive. And even that's not clearly defined. When you say it exotic or invasive, what do you mean? Do you mean it's something introduced from overseas in an entirely different continent? Or do you mean it's something that's been introduced from like a couple of regional zones over? Like it's native to the southeastern United States? Because you have both of that going on in the park as well. And sort of even just drawing the line about, okay, which exotics are bad and which are, you know, worse would be difficult. So mm. there's a value, even if it's not ecologically ideal, quote, there's a value in that mosaic of plants that we now have in this space. Because there's a lot of city. I grew up in Houston. I did not get to go visit. They have some parks, but they tend to be more open parks. And it, there's something to be said about a park that tries to retain the understory with the tree cover, with the canopies on all these different, different topographies. It's like someone took Texas, took out the semi-arid sections, and it's just like threw the rest into this little blender and, and came out with this park that we know is Cameron Park. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, even even our discussion of parks earlier, because I I think of parks as a much more heavily managed space, typically, than some of the areas in Cameron Park. You know, the idea is it park or is it wilderness? And, and where is the line between park and wilderness, I think, is an interesting question. It is an interesting question, and it's one that people continue to, to debate today, and it's a question that they've been debating basically since they've had urban parks like we know them. I mean, Frederick Law Olmsted is probably the most famous parks designer, right, in United States history. And he designed, as you know, Central Park, right, up in New York City. 
And when he designed Central Park, it was the first park to try to intentionally incorporate wilderness. And he did that because he thought wilderness was therapeutic, because he thought that people living in cities were too out of touch with nature and needed opportunities to go into the wild areas. And I mean, since then, you have different times where people lean more towards, oh, it's, it needs to be wild and free and it needs to feel like you are in these untouched places that usually weren't actually untouched. We just call them that, right? Or in some years, it leans more towards, no, it needs to be more garden-like. It needs to be obviously more open. It needs to be obviously managed. It's okay if you can tell it's managed. And I think you get both of that. I mean, you have areas like, you know, pecan bottoms, uh, like some of the ridgetop areas, uh, and certainly around the zoo, right, where they've done so much to sort of incorporate Cameron Park Zoo into the park. It's such a wonderful area now along the bottoms. And so you have areas within the park where you walk in and you're like, oh, yeah, this feels like a managed park. But then you also have areas where you can kind of walk the trails and you're like Daniel Boone all over again. You feel like you're carving out these trails and it feels very much more wild. It feels very much more not isolated, but and not alone, but somehow both alone and connected to what maybe this land looked like you know, 100 years or 200 years prior, even though you and I know that the species composition was totally dissimilar. It feels, it has enough of those echoes still. And I like that about Cameron Park. I like that I can take my kids to the areas where I can see, you know, every direction for to great distances and that it feels like a park. But I also like that we can go yeah. to Cameron Park and hike and, you know, walk and, just sit and look and just soak in what it feels like to be in a forest. It feels like you're in a forest. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can be in those areas where it seems nature is managed and you can be in those areas where <laughs> it seems like nature might overwhelm you, uh, in some areas of Cameron park. And I know it's not that simplistic, but, uh, th those are the places back in the wilderness where, you know, the Cameron Park witch may be people we've, you know, kind of legends <laughs> we've talked about on other podcasts. I love that places like that are within the city limits, those places that because even today I drove down to the park and I passed 35 where they're rebuilding 35 right now. But, oh. Oh. you know, five, five minutes later, I was in the park. And uh, yeah. it's restorative. <laughs> It is so restorative and it is, it's surprising in some ways because you've got miles, miles of roads in that park. You've got miles and miles of not just like dirt trails. I mean, hard surfaced roads in Cameron Park. And it's, it's very, very accessible. And they've obviously the city of Waco and the parks department has worked very hard to make it accessible. But at the same time, as you said, you, you feel like you can disappear, uh, you know, when you're traveling down the little road where the witch, right, lives or where the guy was hung or whatever, whichever ghost story you're talking about. And where you have this very old sensation, in a sense, um, as well. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that you can find all of that in a park that's really pretty developed, in a lot of ways and that's been historically managed and 
really has undergone a lot of anthropogenic pressure. I mean, even just being in close proximity to the city, it's amazing. They didn't log this part completely and clear cut it. That, that's really pretty yeah. fortunate because that's a common story. And we know they logged. I mean, William Cameron, right? Got a like sort of family name, family money from logging. So, I mean, in some ways, we're just fortunate to have a park that they didn't have to go out there and plant tree for tree as some part of rebuilding, rebeautifying, regenerating process. Our trees there in our the understory as well, you have uneven age stands. And that's pretty amazing because a lot of parks like this, even if they've tried to capture that sort of more forest-like feel, that more wild feel, you can, if you know what to look for, you can sometimes see it in the sameness of age and in the sameness of species. And that is just not the case <laughs> in Cameron Park. You've had the fancy way to talk about it as differential, uh, but you've had differential regrowth <laughs> um, and you've had, you know, differential regeneration and delayed growth that make it feel authentic might not be the right word. Um, but it's been managed and it's grown up in what feels like a pretty, quote, natural. There's that word again, right? But natural and sort of authentic yeah. way. You put it in quotes, though. It's fine. I did. Yeah. I, I have air quotes. You just can't see them. <laughs> uh, I, I, you, I, you said you did tree ring studies uh, when you were doing your study. I'm, I'm interested if, if we know where some of the older stands of trees are um, in the park. Do you remember, perhaps? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, there is no one area, really, where I found that, okay, this is the stand that has the oldest trees. But I can tell you, most of the oldest trees in the park appeared to be live oak. And some of the oldest trees are on the ridgetops. And that's surprising because there's so much grazing. But again, if you've been up to those ridgetops or Emmons Cliff or Lover's Leap or whatever, and you've seen those beautiful, big, open crowned broadleaf trees. And when you say open crown, you just mean basically that they were able to grow up without a lot of other trees nearby. It was not densely packed. It was open and more sparsely packed. And so they have these low lying branches that in some cases are like perpendicular to the ground, right? They're horizontal. So it's an open crown rather than the type of trees that are go straight up shooting for light. And you can find those open crown live oaks all throughout the park. And those are usually the oldest trees because a lot of times I couldn't even core them all the way because my equipment wasn't long enough to get to the center. Live oaks are so slow growing in this area. And so it wasn't unusual, though, for me to get up to 120, 150 years, and I wasn't even to the center of the tree. And I mean, I might be off by a couple years dating the tree rings, counting the tree rings is a little bit of an imprecise science with the dendrochronology, right, as they call it. But those big open crowned live oaks that you see on the ridge chops and that you sometimes stumble upon accidentally on the stream valleys, or down on the floodplains or something like that on the cliff tops, those are the oldest and they're peppered throughout the park because you had so much grazing throughout the park. It was really only the floodplains and the stream valleys that didn't see persistent grazing, at least as far as I, I'm aware. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there, there's some in the park that are older than Waco, uh, based on that dating That's, that you have. It, it, that is entirely possible. There are definitely a bunch of trees that are older than the park itself that are older than mm-hmm. the park itself. Now there are some species that grow super quick, like cedar elm. And so you'll sometimes stumble on and cedar elm are those trees that have the little leaves with the little curves, curvatures essentially on the edge. And they're maybe the size of your thumb and they fall like golden confetti in the fall. You've seen a, you've seen cedar elm and they are very quick yeah. growing. And so you might see a cedar elm that looks as large as the live oaks, which have the little green waxy looking trees. Live oaks are actually, they don't lose their leaves in the same way that like an oak does. The cedar elm might be the same size as the live oak and be half the age because it grows so, so, so quickly. Um, But yeah, you'll see some, there's probably some pecans and cottonwoods in the floodplains that predate the park as well, because there's some very big trees down there, but certainly there's some trees I know, I know without a doubt, there are trees that are older than the park. And I feel pretty confident that there are some live oaks that they may have just been saplings, but that they were there when the city is sort of just being laid out, just getting started, just sort of expanding into that area. Um Another question, this is getting in a little bit to your river research as well, but but when you take away periodic flooding, which we've talked about on the podcast before, how how often you would have flooding in that alluvial plain, how does it begin to kind of shape and change the, that landscape uh, down near the river? Yeah, that is a really, really good question because what you're going to see is that I mentioned early that sort of the like hydrological regime, I mean, that just means like how often it floods, right? Um, It can affect the water table as well. Once you start building dams, it means you're going to have far fewer floods, right? Because without Lake Waco Dam, without Whitney Dam, the Brazos River in this area, it flooded almost yearly. These were very small scale floods. And they were actually very important floods because they would redeposit these really rich alluvial soils onto the floodplains. Now, you don't have too much of a floodplain in Cameron Park, right? It's pretty narrow before it bumps up against those cliffs. But that's still important Mm -hmm. for those floodplain species there like cottonwood and pecan. Because these small floods would help deposit these really rich soils that you're not really going to find in abundance in that area otherwise. It could help disperse seeds. Uh, It could help clear out undergrowth. And so these small floods are really important. Now, Lake Waco Dam's 1929, and that doesn't actually prevent the area from flooding. It just means that you have fewer floods. But when you have them, they tend to be on a much worse scale because it means you've breached the dam or the dam has failed or you've had to have a release. So I mean, Lake Waco is 1929, the worst flood on record, and Waco is 1936, right? And I I don't think that's been topped to this day. You have some other pretty bad floods since then, but to my knowledge, 36 was the worst. And in that flood, it Mm -hmm. entirely covered east and west banks with 10, 15 feet of water. It goes up to the cliff tops, and I mean, that's catastrophic. You're going to lose some trees 
right, with that kind of flooding. And so, yeah, when you alter the frequency of floods, you're going to alter the severity of floods and you're going to alter some things that you don't necessarily intend to change. I think it was John Muir that essentially said, when you pluck something out of the universe, you figure out that everything else is kind of connected to it. I'm paraphrasing there, but that's kind of what happens here. When you start messing with these dams, and that doesn't mean it's a bad decision to build them, but when you start building these dams, you start altering things in the landscape you don't know necessarily that you're going to alter. And really, the East Bank in some ways suffers from, at least in an agricultural sense, in, from losing these yearly deposits of that rich, rich alluvial soil. Interesting. Um, for folks that may be listening on a device right now, I want to uh, say they're they're driving through or they're walking through Cameron Park, and uh, uh, Dr. Kenna Archer is with them <laughs> and is acting acting as their tour guide. What might be some things that you would give them tips to maybe look out for or watch for or notice as they kind of think about moving through that space? I had to shift my position. This is such a good question. Okay. <laughs> so what are some things I would recommend? I don't know that I'm the, the best company, um, but... I am. You're you're all they've got. You're, you're all they've got. So. Oh, okay, it is a sad day. I'm I'm the best company they they can find. Um, I am one of those people. Maybe this is where my cognitive dissonance comes in. But I'm I'm one of those people that I I find beauty in nature quite easily. Um, I, I can drive down a road and be in a safe way, uh, astounded by like the sheer number of shades of green that I'm seeing, you know, as the landscape flies by me. And so if I was walking with someone through Cameron Park, I would really, even if they didn't want me to, I would force them to at least hear me out. I would really encourage them to find the beauty, not just in the park, but in the layers of sort of different species and colors. And, you know, you've got, 50 shades, I guess it's not 50, it's probably like 27 shades of green represented in those leaves. And in the, the bark, I would encourage them to even just take a second to appreciate just the vast variety of, you know, tree bark in all the shades of brown and not just view the park as something to get through, which if you're going to Cameron Park, maybe you already think this way. But sometimes you go to the park because you feel like you need to exercise or because you feel like you just need to go to the park to get outside. And it's not about the park itself. It's just about what you're doing there. And I really encourage them to sort of just pause and breathe in the sheer beauty of this place and the different shapes of the flowers. And like I said, one of my favorite things is in fall when the cedar elm starts to drop their leaves because it's like someone just threw up golden and orange and yellow pieces of confetti. And to appreciate just sort of the magnitude of what has been accomplished in setting aside this park here. So the park is the destination, 
sometimes, not just the walking or the biking or the picnic, although that's all super cool. You know, socialization is great. Um, but to see it on a like very micro level as well, just the yeah, beauty of the bottoms, the beauty of the cliff tops, it, it, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's great, because I, I think even even I was asking the question wrong. I was asking about particular species, but what oh. you're talking about there is no, it, what you're talking about, the, the pleasure of the park comes from really appreciating the ecosystem. The, uh, you know, you could, you could not see the forest because of the tree, you know, just, it's not about these individual species, but it's about all of them together. Okay. So I'm going to add an addendum to my answer. Once I was done, hitting them upside the head, like with the beauty of the park, um, I would then very gracefully segue into answering the original question that you asked. Uh, and really, truly, it would probably still be this invitation to, oh, you need to look at how amazing this is. But I would honestly probably point out those open crowned live oak trees because they're buried throughout the park at large. And once you see them, it's sort of hard to unsee how much they don't fit in, in a sense, because the trees around them don't grow in that sort of half circle. That's sort of the shape to look for, a half circle, and the branches are basically running parallel to the ground. And they are massive trees. They're, they're climbing trees, in a sense, because they have those lower branches, as opposed to those, you know, like, pine tree <laughs> type things poking up to the sky, the toothpicks. And I would really encourage them to look for those live oak trees, both because I, I think it is so monumental to consider that that grand tree in front of you uh, predates probably your grandparents. There's just sort of something valuable to seeing the age in those trees. There's something incredibly beautiful about live oak just in general. Um, as a tree, and also because there's such a great reminder of the stories hidden in this park, of the ways that, you know, different people have used it for different uses at different times. It's just such a great reminder that nature is not static, that development of the city has not been static, and that the stories we build around the park have never, ever been static. And we can find all those little reminders if we are just looking. You can walk the trails and find the barbed wire just like I did. It's there next to the trails. You can climb established trails and find foundations that probably weren't homes, but might have been. We have pretty good anecdotal evidence that wealthy Wakelins summered in Cameron Park in the late 1800s. But really, some of these are probably like barns and smaller homesteads. And so live oaks to me are just a great symbol for how we can find these super cool stories buried inside what might otherwise just be dismissed as that's a park, that's a forest, mm -hmm. that's just some nature area. Yeah, I think you're calling us to look a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah that's my tagline. Look a little closer. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, as an homage to my previous host, who's not with me anymore, I, I always ask for spicy stories. Any spicy flora stories uh, that came out in your research of Cameron Park? Ooh. Um, I don't even know what that would be, <laughs> but uh, 
I'm just asking. Um, no, the spiciest thing that ever came out of this research was uh, the snakes that <laughs> would sometimes like cross my path. I, I learned to get really jumpy real quick. But probably the craziest story I ever had is I was up in the cedar breaks um, doing basically some plot studies and I was measuring the species composition essentially to see if I could find evidence uh, of regeneration that pointed to grazing. And I stumbled on some bones and I was all freaked out because I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't tell what it was. It was obviously not like a bird. These were big bones. And, you know, for a while, Cameron Park had sort of these rumors of is it, you know, it's not safe. And they've done so much to combat that. And I've actually never gone to the park and felt unsafe. Although obviously always practice safety, right? When you're going somewhere like that. And even though I didn't feel unsafe, of course, my immediate thought was, oh my gosh, there's just something terrible going on here. It's the witch or it's the hangman or it's some terrible thing. And no, it was a dog. <laughs> it was, I, I finally found the skull and I was like, oh, that's a dog. <laughs> um, so that's probably, that was probably the craziest story. I hyped myself up after uh, about nothing. I think it was, I'd been out there six hours and I was hot. So I think I was probably just looking for a reason to, to leave, but that and snakes. That's probably the the spiciest. Yeah. <laughs> Neither of which yeah. is flora related, but yeah, we didn't get into the fauna. The fauna is the scary part. The, the fauna is the <laughs> scary part. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Ken, I really want to appreciate you coming back on the podcast. I, I want to mention again Unruly Waters, which is out there. Ken Lang Archer's book, which is a a great work on the Brazos. If so, if you're wanting a book to pick up to to understand, especially the social history of the Brazos River, although it gets into other topics. It's a great book to pick up um, and, and more more to come. She's overcommitted, <laughs> as we established off air. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining me again, and uh, best, best of luck in the uh, upcoming semester. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.